Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer, author, and software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Complete Developer Podcast. Most software developers put at least some error handling code in their applications. However, system complexity can mean that error handling isn't enough and that the system can still fall over. Instead, you need to step back and think about error handling at a larger scale to help keep the system stable. In this episode, we're going to discuss some of the principles of anti-fragility and how you can leverage errors and other systemic problems to make systems not only more resilient, but actually stronger because of constant exposure to smaller issues. But before we get started, Will, what are your issues this week? Man, I barely got this episode done. I actually had one of these, uh, I guess you'd say life catastrophic failures. Not really a catastrophic failure, but just a chain of things going wrong. Uh, so my daughter was sick on Saturday and my wife you know, was, was going to run. And basically it ended up where I was not able to leave to go to Walmart and actually do all my shopping. I try to be out of there by nine 30 in the morning, you know, before all the uh, thumb faced scooter people get there, um, slow everything down. And, uh, I had a bad day Saturday. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Uh, it took forever to, to get through and that ended up burning up enough time where when I got home and I was like, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to try to do the podcast outline. I only had like an hour and then I had to go back out to get something else. And I came back and I had like an hour and then I had to go back out to get dinner. So basically chewed up my whole day Saturday, not entirely, but just made the time that was available uh, kind of useless. So that ends up like pushing into Sunday and then making it where I don't get everything done. I need to get done Sunday, which, you know, continued cascading until today, basically when I ate frozen burritos and finished my lunch. So, yeah, uh, and we're going to talk about this kind of thing in the episode about how you structure systems so that a single fault doesn't uh, balloon into something much worse. So how about you? So um, I got to be honest with you. This is not the episode I expected because Will didn't finish this episode until this afternoon um, or at lunchtime, I think. Uh, I, I don't remember when I got the text, but um, when he told me he was doing uh, an anti-fragile episode, I was thinking, oh, cool. It's like Sometimes we call agile fragile. So I was thinking it was going to be a a business episode on how to have good agile practices, not a technical episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, (laughs) that is actually something that I wish I had had more time to look into because uh, this is going to be good. Uh, I've probably faced some of these things recently. So uh, so that's good. In more personal news, I got my real ID today. Well, I got the paper version. They're going to mail me the the actual card because in Tennessee, we don't print those anymore. They give you a piece of paper and then mail it to you. Yeah, I still haven't gotten mine. I need to do that. For those of you not in the United States of America, each state 
in the union is allowed to kind of set its own rules. It has been for the whole a time. long time for driver's license and state issued IDs. Uh, that can't be changed. So since the federal government can't enforce anything on the state issued IDs, they created this real ID that has countrywide standards for every state to follow. The thing that gets me is uh, in October, it was supposed to be last October, but it got postponed due to COVID, uh, like so many things in life. Uh, But in October, you won't be able to travel domestically without one. Flying, right? Because I think you still probably drive, but for now. (laughs) (laughs) I will say this. It was a nice experience. Uh, I had an appointment at the DMV, so I didn't have to wait in line at all. I have a three-bedroom house, single story, and the building the DMV was in is like three of my houses set side to side. Uh, The line was out the door all the way to the back of the building. That's why I didn't get mine. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you pretty much have to make an appointment. So like, I made an appointment. I walked up to the front of the line. I was like, uh, I need to reschedule because I can't stand in line. She's like, oh, you have an appointment? No, you go on in. Went on in, and the only thing I had to wait on was a booth to open up. Like, the very next one available, I went, did all the stuff, and left. I mean, that's the convenience of making an appointment. Now, mind you, I had to wait a month and a half to get my appointment. It's like I, I made it, and it was just so far ahead. But it was it was very quick, so that wasn't bad. Also, it was kind of fun talking to strangers again. I like people, and it's been a while since I've like had the opportunity to to talk to strangers since uh well, like yeah, with COVID, but then also not drinking. That's one of the things that I've really noticed is I used to go sit at bars and just talk to random people. Now I don't do that, and I kind of miss talking to people I don't already know. It's it's different. Speaking of different, my midterm is this week. I think it's gonna be open book. I know he's giving us two chances to take it. Basically, you take it. If you don't like your score, you can retake it. It, it kind of goes to the attitude of the instructor. He's more focused on us learning the material than on following some grading protocol or standard. So his attitude is, I have to have grades. So you know, I have to test your knowledge somehow. We're going to do this. You can take it. And then if you don't do well on it, you can retake it. And the learning is going to happen between those two. He's like, you're going to know that a lot better once you've done that. I'm like, oh, that's that's cool. That's cool. I like that. Uh, also, work is pretty busy as well. Um, it's just that time of the year. It's just a busy time of the year. Uh, speaking of busy, we started Saturday night services at church this past weekend. Uh, that was a lot of fun. I was on camera. Um, it was a bit of a challenge because the we have fewer people on the worship praise team for Saturday night. So they have a different kind of setup uh, and they're using a box drum instead of the, the full drum kit. So the height dynamic was different because, you know, the drummer sits on that. And so it was just, it was all sorts of weird, but fun challenges. The only thing is Saturday night is typically my downtime. We'll have uh, our prayer service in the morning and then Amanda and I might go out during the day or whatnot. And then just like, sit back and watch a movie, just relax Saturday night. Uh, so I'm going to have to restructure my schedule to find some downtime again. That sounds familiar. Yeah. 
So speaking of downtime. Saving money is hard, especially during the busy season and when you've got taxes due and so many other things going on as life hits and spring is arriving. So you're getting out more and doing more stuff. Lucas Casades is a fee-only certified financial planner. He owns and runs Level Up Financial Planning virtually out of Fort Collins, Colorado. Investing in financial planning services really comes down to whether or not you can improve your finances with the help of Level Up. Uh, the compounding impact of making better financial decisions is going to easily pay for itself. And best of all, Level Up has a unique pricing model that will help you no matter where you are in your financial journey. So you can start today. Yeah. You can find some fun, free resources and learn a whole lot more at levelupfinancialplanning.com. If carpenters built houses the way programmers write code, the first woodpecker to come along would destroy civilization. That's a quote from Gerald Weinberg. We all have to deal with errors in our code, or at least we're kind of supposed to. Um, I know some people seem to think that that's fairly optional, so we'll uh, leave that there. However, you've probably experienced a situation where a small problem caused another small problem, which caused a big problem, which ended up taking an entire system down. If you've ever experienced this, you're also probably pretty painfully aware that these failures can be really expensive and hard to recover from when they happen. Second order effects are usually not that terribly hard to predict if you're actually thinking about them. However, you'll also find that neither you nor anyone else does a particularly good job thinking about second, third, and fourth order effects of decisions unless they're actually trying to concentrate on those things. Massive failures, especially, are easily predicted. For instance, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor was easily predictable based on rising tensions between the governments of Japan and the U.S., the layout of islands in the Pacific, and advancing aviation technology. In fact, the attacks were predicted in 1910 by Billy Mitchell, who analyzed the situation. However, in spite of these predictions, the U.S. fleet still was caught unprepared. Not only did this cause a catastrophic loss of lives and equipment, but it also led to a larger war, a war that might not have happened or might not have occurred in the same way had things been prepared differently. At the end of the day, people in positions of power didn't believe that such a chain of events could happen, nor were they adequately able to shift resources to deal with a rising threat. Such a threat couldn't be moderated by academic theorizing, but would require being in a position to get regular feedback and iterate quickly. This is a lot harder to do with battleships than it is with code. Yeah. In this episode, we'll discuss anti-fragility, specifically in the context of how you can use these principles to make both yourself and the systems you design more stable. Anti-fragile design is more complex than simply handling errors and keeping them from causing problems, although that's definitely part of it. Rather, it's an approach to embracing and using the natural chaos of the world to improve your response to small problems so that a chain of them does not result in a massive failure, among other things. As explained by Nassim Taleb, who originated this concept, anti-fragility is a property of systems in which they increase in capability to thrive as a result of stressors, shocks, volatility, 
noise, mistakes, faults, attacks, or failures. It is fundamentally different from the concept of resiliency. You know, in other words, the ability to recover from failure. Such systems exist in nature in biological systems as diverse as muscles and immune systems. So we'll start talking about the continuum of fragility. Fragile basically denotes something that when it gets under pressure, it breaks. On the other end, robust handles pressure, but does not become strong under pressure. Right. So this, you know, like a fragile system would be like, hey, I don't handle any errors. If you get an error, everything just crashes and dies. A robust system says, hey, I'm going to try to handle this error, maybe even try to clean up after it. Yeah. Right. Which is what you should be writing at the very least. An anti-fragile system takes that a step further and says, okay, I have these errors and I'm going to use these to drive improvements that make the system stronger over time. So for instance, I'm going to take heuristics and go, how do I prevent this error? How do I deal with a system that is temporarily just not available Yeah, and structure my code in that way? Yeah, you're not going to automate anti-fragility. Right. Um, it's definitely... Unless you're Google. Yeah. And it takes a while. <laughs> I mean, Netflix has got some interesting things uh, in the guts of their system too, but... I don't think Netflix is very robust. I've been having lots of problems with them lately. Yeah, my wife has to sign in, I think, every single time now, like has to type the password in again. I'm not having that problem. I'll be like, and I can almost like predict it. Like last night when I was eating dinner and just trying to like take a brain break, I was watching Batman Begins and it was just like the very beginning of the movie. And I'm like, it's about to freeze and then try to catch up really quickly. And that's like literally what happened. Like I could almost predict the exact frame that it's going to happen in because it's happened so many times. I can just like, like almost anticipate the behavior. And then when I tried to rewind it to watch through that, that scene again, it crashed twice. So yeah, Netflix <laughs> try harder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, Netflix, you got a great opportunity here. <laughs> yep. Uh, so why do you want your systems to be anti-fragile? Mainly it's because people expect systems to stay up. But as systems become more complex, the number of things that can fall apart will increase exponentially. As a system scales in complexity, the cost of downtime typically increases as well. And the difficulty of bringing things back online also increases, unless you specifically design the system to improve recovery options. And most people don't do that because they go, hey, it's not ever going to fall over. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm currently replacing a system that was built with that in mind, which is why I find it funny because I'm like, there's no error handling at all. Yeah. It just, and here, here's my frustration with this, this system. Cause it's not just an API. They're saying that I'm replacing the API, but it's actually this entire system that we're like using for, for this. And it's just, it was never designed for the way it's being used. It was designed for a very specific purpose. And so like errors, if they happen, they're swallowed and returned yeah. as a string. I've worked on a few of those, especially yeah. back before I really understood how rest was supposed to work, you know, cause it was a little bit, let's say it was a bit more dodgy in the earlier .NET days because <laughs> people didn't do it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I've been there, done that. Basically, the deal here is that a partially 
functional system that still allows most operational goals to proceed has less cost in terms of time, money, and you know, customer slash management irritation than a system that falls over does. And so if you can make your system uh, structured in such a way that some small break doesn't break the whole thing, then that's probably going to work out better for you. Well, yeah, because if you can do that, then you can take a lot of little hits yeah, and still get, get the majority of the work done. You know, like if you can, we're, we're talking about, uh, we're migrating from one system to another for document storage. And we're like, all right, well, we're going to have to do some data transformation here on kind of the metadata around the documents. And I made the comment, I was like, yeah, so, you know, let's say we're, we're transferring 2000 files and we get like 50 that we have issues with. We'll store, you know, the IDs of those over here and we can go back and adjust them. And like the business people were like, if we only have 50, that'll be phenomenal. (laughs) But the, the idea was it, it wouldn't fall over. And I built a system not long ago that I didn't realize was like the way I built it. The idea was, Hey, something's wrong if we have so many errors. And what I didn't realize was the load. Like I was thinking, all right, they're going to try to upload, you know, a hundred files. And if you have like five errors, then, all right, hey, something might be wrong with the way these are structured. We should probably stop this and take a look at it. No, they're uploading like thousands upon thousands of files. And it's like, oh, yeah, in in the course of like copying over all this metadata and stuff around the files, there's going to be some errors. Like it was a robust system, but it was not anti-fragile. Right. It would be anti-fragile more if it actually either manually or automatically looked at those files that were messed up and said, okay, I'm going to find ways to correct these or to make it so that the people on the other end get the feedback. And so they're making fewer errors. Yeah. Small system failures are learning opportunities for avoiding the big ones, provided that you survive the small failure. And that's one thing uh, Taleb brings up in his book. Total avoidance of failures is impossible. So shaping your reaction to failures is an important goal. Catastrophic system failures are often caused by the buildup of smaller failures. Uh, the more small failures your system can successfully mitigate, the more likely it is that you will avoid at least some catastrophic failures. So it's kind of the Jurassic Park principle. That makes sense. Yeah. Right. Because it wasn't just one little thing. It was a bunch of small things tying together and all of a sudden people are getting eaten. Yeah. I follow what you're saying. Okay. It was, it was small things tying together and then big things getting loose. <laughs> That's probably a better way to put it. So. Next, why anti-fragile in life? We all have sort of a normalcy bias, but that bias can really get us into trouble. You know, the job, relationship, life situation, or health that you took for granted may not always be there. And if you aren't prepared, the damage can be significant. Yeah, your life has probably accumulated more and more complexity over time if you're like most people. Along with the added complexity, you've probably accumulated a few additional life failure modes that you haven't considered yet, uh, to put it mildly. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> you know, some interruptions in your life are unavoidable, but you're going to have a much better quality of life overall if you can avoid catastrophic failures where a chain of events takes you down. 
Yeah, I mean, I had that. I've talked about it a few times, but uh, I think we we even mentioned it when we talked about some of it that one or even, you know, a couple of the things that happened to me. What was that? Seven years ago? Six years ago? Yeah, it's 2014, right? Yeah. So, yeah, six, seven years ago, roughly around now. Yeah. Just one or even just a couple of those things that that went on would have been survivable. I survived it, but wouldn't have caused the catastrophic failure that I had, you know, that led to, well, where I am now. So, you know, I guess that's a good thing, but (laughs) yeah. Well, and I think the other thing too, is you're, you're quite a bit more Mm anti-fragile now in a lot of respects because of that experience, right? Like that's kind of how you learn it. And by the way, I I do want to note here that we're using the term failure in the sense of a, uh, systemic collapse, whether it's avoidable or not, and not in terms of a value judgment on someone experiencing these problems. Yeah. Do kind of want to point that out because that's kind of a loaded term and I can see how people take that. That's a really good point because, you know, I mean, I'll admit I failed at a lot of things, but that's another thing is I also have tried a lot of things. Yep. You know, I, I've talked to some people who have never failed at anything in life and you're like, all right, well, what? what all have you done? And it's like, oh, well, I went to school, got my degree, got a job, been at the same job for the last five, 10 years. You really haven't tried anything, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, you've tried some stuff, but it's like, well, and also think about like that person that you're envisioning. I, I can envision several like that who didn't take any risks. Let's say that they go through a sudden divorce, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or a job loss. Let's say they just lose their job because that's something that happens all the time, right? They lose their job. How well are they going to handle it compared to you if you were to lose your job, right? Because you've been through enough where your systems are mentally and physically and network wise and everything else are in place where you're going to recover much more quickly than that person that doesn't think that's going to happen and has insulated themselves from the small shocks. Yeah, that's that's a good point. If I lost my job, good grief, if the entire software development industry completely collapsed, I would just be like, all right, what next? Yeah. Because <laughs> literally, that's just, I, I've switched industries enough times now that I'm like, eh, you know, I might be eating ramen for a few months, but then. And you I'll know how to make it my- edible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a um, hard thing to learn the first time too. Oh yeah. But you know, um, this kind of reminds me of the Amanda and my second date. We were going to the hot air balloon festival and that was just a, uh, like a string of failures <laughs> that ended up with, that you probably enjoyed. Oh yeah. That ended up with her buying me dinner. So, I mean, Yeah. We, uh, my car, the battery died on the interstate in rush hour and we get towed to my aunt and uncle's place. I accidentally ordered an Uber to take us on to the, the event, which was fine. But then we get there and they've already canceled the hot air balloon rides because of the weather. We got to do a helicopter ride and then got like torrential downpour (laughs) called another uber to take us back 
like just like thing after thing and like we're having a blast because both of us have been through stuff and we've just like we've built up that all right well you know make the best of it kind of thing and look for the benefits we're in the uber driving riding back to murfreesboro and uh i realized we haven't eaten and i'm hungry because like you know when they started shutting stuff down we couldn't get food so (laughs) i looked at her i was like are you hungry (laughs) I mean, this disaster of a second date. I look over, I'm like, you hungry? She's like, yeah, I kind of am. I'm like, you want to get some food? (laughs) Yeah. And when you can, when you can do that because you've had the other shocks. Yeah. You know, you're resilient. Like imagine if you got surly and, you know, we're in a bad mood, like either of us would have been in college in that situation. Like we're just stuck. Not enough stuff has happened to you where you just. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't, you would not be in that headspace. You'd be freaking out like that. That's a fragile approach. Or if you were the guy that's like trying to, you know, dot, dot all the I's and cross all the T's so that that doesn't happen. Yeah. You might not, not ever go. Yeah. So cascading failures in life are extremely destructive, usually expensive and can be fatal if you're particularly unlucky. Worse still, they often have psychological and financial impacts for years afterward. Yeah. Which can leave you vulnerable to even more catastrophic consequences. I mean, just when I had the the cascade, I mean, the issue with my dad and then struggling in school and then like depression and then my ex-wife leaving me, which deepened the depression, which worsened my grades at school, which ultimately led to me leaving school. And then like, I had nothing. Like I had put everything into becoming a doctor and came back and it was just like, I had my clothes, my dog and my truck. Oh, and my bike, which I don't have the truck anymore. That got stolen. Yeah. (laughs) I remember that day too. I was on the phone with the, uh, the insurance lady. And she's like, you don't seem to be like that upset about it. I'm like, Oh, I'm upset, but I've had much worse. The end of the country song. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The end of the country song, the truck gets stolen. (laughs) Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, basically, uh, I've had much worse days than this, um, at that point, but yeah. Um, no, like it, and it, it did, it left me open to like, you know, I had the cascade, which, like left me open to the the depression and that led to the bad grades, which led to like even further catastrophic consequences. And I mean, I was digging myself out of a financial hole for years after that. So next we're going to talk about some simple rules that you need to stick to, to be anti-fragile. No, yeah, that's the first rule is stick to simple rules. Yeah. Uh, point five says stick to simple rules. Yeah, that's the first rule. Wait. Stick to simple rules, decentralized, develop layered systems. Okay. The outline is not organized in such a way that I would have known that those nope, that were not get into <laughs> a set of rules. That's so. why we have the system we have and we are anti fragile because of that. Yes. Now we actually just need to be resilient, and that was dumb. So <clears throat> Okay, so now we are going to talk about some rules that you can follow to 
help yourself and your code be anti-fragile. And the first rule is a meta rule, and that is to stick to simple rules. So here's a quote from Euripides. It says, how can you think yourself a great man when the first accident that comes along can wipe you out completely? Adding complexity for its own sake will make systems more fragile, just in general. Yeah. While sometimes it's true that systems really are that complex, it's also true that human beings are profoundly capable of making simple things more complicated than they are. Oh my goodness. Yeah, just wait till we get to uh, my tricks of the trade because it is like straight up this point. <laughs> I'll, I'll talk about that later though, guys. You'll you'll hear that in, at the end of the episode. But yeah, I, I got one for this too that's that's not there. But uh, so we're, we recently started adding some motion shots to um, what we're doing for our live stream at church. And like, I'm doing the stuff I'm practicing and our team lead was actually the one speaking. And so I was calling shots. We were short staffed this, this week. I was calling shots from the camera and our, one of the other leaders on the team, she's the over the computers, but she was on the stream computer. And so she's like handling, switching the cameras and stuff and uh like i was telling her what like what i was going to do and i was like all right i'm gonna let you decide when to switch between cameras when i'm doing one of these motion shots because like you can see it well and, and know when to do that and she starts going into like like making it very complicated and like well you know um all this stuff about training people and stuff like that i'm like whoa 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 we're not there yet we'll think about how to train people on this later right now like this is this was like the second or third week we'd done it. I'm like, right now we're still figuring out what to do. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> well, and it's like explaining, uh, you know, home winemaking to somebody, right? Like I've had people go, "Oh, I just could, I don't think I could do that." And it's like, dude, somebody with four teeth, nine thousand years ago, wearing a loincloth, did it. Yeah, <laughs> you're. If you're thinking it's too hard, you <laughs> just made it something that it didn't. Yeah, and sometimes, like, have you ever done this where you're it's a simple process. And if you show someone it's like, Oh, that's a really simple process. But then you're asked to like make a checklist for it or write down the process for someone to follow on their own. And you're like, yeah, Oh my goodness. I didn't realize how like complicated this thing was. Yeah. Writing instructions, you make things complex, but doing things, you make them simple. Yeah. Um, it's generally the rule I, I try to use because you have to be able to answer questions with instructions versus doing something you got to be able to execute. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about how to apply this in systems. You know, don't use complex software architectures until you need them. And you can prove that you need them based upon stuff that actually happened. You know, in other words, the system got under load, fell over. Okay. Now I know that I need to fix that. Not, I think it'll fall over. Yeah. And then applying this in life, don't add complexity to your finances and lifestyle until you can afford well in excess of them. So my youngest sister just bought a house. Their house was fine when they had one kid. It was a little, little small when they had two kids. Now that they got three, you know, just, just a bit too small for, for that big a family. <laughs> yeah. And so one of the pieces of advice that my mom gave my sister was don't buy what they tell you you can buy. Right. You know, they're going to tell you like the absolute edge of what you can buy. 
She's like, do not buy that. Go below. Well below. <laughs> People get themselves into trouble really by making things more complex than they are. Um, if a piece of complexity is not serving a purpose right now, get rid of it. Um, if you can't get rid of it, at least practice being without it so that failure modes don't surprise you when they happen. So for instance, okay, we had to, you know, somebody implemented this microservice. I can't get rid of it. Let me shut it off and see how the app behaves in a time with low load. Yeah. And fix the issues I find there rather than waiting for Black Friday. Or in in life, something that I'm, I think it's cool that Will mentioned here because I had a, a, ma- a minor in philosophy was that the Stoics would suggest practicing poverty, which is, I think we've talked about that in other episodes. It might've been on the aftercast. I can't remember exactly, but, uh, but that's where you will put yourself in a position of like less for a time and see how, how you can deal with like not having that. Like I was talking about watching Batman begins and that's sort of what Bruce did in the movie was, you know, he's basically called out for not knowing what it was like to live in poverty. So he just walked away and did that. And, you know, before you think that this is too hard, anybody listening to this has lived through the last year. You've already been practicing poverty. Some of you quite literally not been able to find toilet paper. Like that's a real thing. Figure out what you're afraid of and then how you react to it. Like I learned a lot when everything got shut down, I'm like, Hey, there's supplies that I do not keep on hand in enough quantity. Yeah. And now that's fixed. Yeah. Makes sense. Speaking of supplies, <laughs> the next rule is decentralize systems that are controlled in one place are easily disrupted in one place because that's where the control structure is. Top-down control topologies can only work well in very small systems. They do not work well at a large scale. Yeah, it's important to note that centralization is how most systems, uh, natural or unnatural, will trend over time. Up until the point that centralization becomes an issue and uh, creates some sort of vulnerability that will break the system entirely. So to apply this notion in systems, you know, have failovers for critical systems that have to be centralized, you know, stuff like authentication, Uh, try to have setups that are interruption resistant, you know, queuing and those kinds of things for parts that don't have to be centralized, but are reacting to those things. So the auth goes down. Okay. We'll just queue everything up. And when the auth comes back online, then we'll process the queue and we'll go on versus it just being dead. Now to apply this in life, don't overly rely on uh, one person or one situation for your quality of life, um, whether that's a job or relationship, whatever. Now, this doesn't mean, and these are Will's words, having a backup spouse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I couldn't think of a better way to put that, but I was like, I have to make this clear. <laughs> I think yeah. some percentage of the population, um, but it does mean that you have to have a support network and friends in addition to a spouse. Yeah. Um, this is a good point. And I know we do have a lot of introverts in our industry and a lot of people who only have a small group of friends. It's important to have some diversity amongst your friends in, in that, you know, you don't all work 
in the same place. You don't all live in the same place because, you know, you have a natural disaster in your area. It's going to be hard for you to help each other out because you're trying to survive. But you got a friend who, you know, lives somewhere else and can like send some support. That's going to be good and vice versa. You know, like I remember when, uh, do you remember when Guy's mom passed away? Yeah. And he had a large support system here and a support system down in Florida where, where his parents lived. They went down to Florida to, to help with that and ended up staying for an extended period of time and ended up moving down there. But, you know, while they were away, they needed people to take care of their house, take care of their cats. Like I was one of uh, several people because, you know, they didn't want to put the entire load on just one person because it was going to be for an extended amount of time. Yeah. And it, it also just makes it more likely that that person will fail yeah. in some way or something happens and now you got to scramble. When you're adding stuff to systems, prefer adding things that are not centralized or that have redundancy built into them. Uh, this is one of the reasons that a lot of businesses are using the cloud now is because it's cheaper to do that there versus mm-hmm. I've got to add more servers to the rack and fail over networking and you know all this other stuff. So the next rule is to develop layered systems. Uh, you know This is an extension of the previous rule and can help mitigate problems where logic is required to be centralized. Yeah, for instance, if you have a multi-tenant piece of software, the list of tenants is crucial to the system staying online. However, that creates a central point of failure. If, however, the list of tenants was loaded into a distributed cache, that layer would effectively protect the rest of the application from a transient fault in the component. Yeah, so let's talk about how to apply this in systems. I mean, obviously, that would uh, this example is what we'll use. Um, if you're using layering to keep problems in one area of the system from leaking into other areas, um, you know this is the core reason that we do things like objects and three tier architectures um, instead of global variables and business logic in the database, which is what we used to do or some places still do. It's because it keeps a problem from creeping out into the rest of the system. Yeah. I've basically replaced some of those systems already, and I've been asked to help out with some of them. Um, It's quite frustrating when you're like serving your time on the maintenance team and you have to deal with that. And you're like this, why, why is it like this? And then you go look at your lead developers code and you're like, all right, that's why it's like this. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because that they were starting out during that time when that was the way of doing things. So to apply this to life, you want to protect yourself from a job loss, particularly by living below your means, having an emergency fund, you know, having other sources of income is another, if you can do that. Uh, I mean, canned goods too, by the way. Yeah. But that emergency fund and living below your means is very, very important. Like for example, I have an emergency fund and I have a a living normal budget and a without a job budget, basically. Like, what can I do without? No streaming services, like bare minimums on all sorts of stuff, that kind of thing, like just cutting back. And yeah, I mean, I can I can survive on very little if needed. Yeah. Um the other thing too is having good boundaries so that other people's drama doesn't 
creep into your life. Uh, you know, you and I were talking about uh, some of that kind of stuff right before the podcast. You know, I cut some people off seven years ago today and that, you know, not allowing that kind of drama to show up in my life, I think is one of the reasons things have worked so well for me Yeah, for the last you know, seven years. Like that's a, that was a, that was an inflection point. Mm-hmm. So I just was like, I'm not doing this anymore. And it, I mean, it, it makes a difference. You know, always add protective layers between systems that are critical to you and systems that are either volatile or not under your control or both. Prioritize keeping problems from spreading so that they're just in one area. Yeah, that's that is a very important thing that I have I have seen the negative effects of in uh, in systems that weren't designed like this. Uh, so the next rule is build in redundancy and overcompensation. If a part of a system is potentially volatile, and they all are, have the ability to swap it out with something else. Systems that run close to resource limits have an increased chance of this kind of catastrophic failure because they're they're right on the edge there. And so you want to have some extra time thinking about this. I think of estimating. Yeah in sprint plannings where it's like, I just, I just remember I was asked to estimate some, some stuff and it, there were not even requirements yet. And I'm like, I can't, I can't tell you what, how long it's going to take because I don't know what you're wanting me to build. But then they, they came back with some kind of loose, here's kind of what we want. And I was like, all right, well, you know, that should take about six to eight months. And the project manager was like, all right, I'm putting it down for a year. I'm like, yeah. Um, okay. He's like, yeah. He's like, I'm going to give you a little bit of a buffer there in case, you know, you need it. I was like, I was already kind of buffering some, but yeah, but you don't ever dude. tell the project manager that. Oh no, no, no. <laughs> Cause then they assume Thanks, that you're buffering dude. always and they cut it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you can't ever just go, why don't you just take my estimate? Cause I already, yeah. yeah. So I do have a small rant here. Um, you'll see people on the internet complain about the amount of food we waste. We waste a tremendous amount of food. We, we absolutely do. And you should try to cut down on your food waste because it's expensive, nothing else. However, at a societal level, do you know what happens when you have 99% utilization of your food supply and there's a drought? You don't have a food supply? Right. Um, And so it's not that it's not a problem to waste food. It's that the way that this gets described in literature, if you start looking, is kind of backwards and it's not safe. I will say this when you're... Talking about uh, not wasting food, three-week-old chicken <laughs> is not uh, not safe to eat and should be thrown away. That's all. I well, what you do about. is you put that outside and you bait a possum because of where you live, and then you catch the possum and you eat the possum. So you've converted it now. It's actually yeah, not a bad okay. idea. Uh, though uh, <laughs> Get right a lot now, of out of one of those. So to apply this in systems. You don't want to add system capacity that's only sufficient to handle your current maximum load uh, unless you can very quickly scale up like in the cloud, it, like with a lot of those systems, it's easy to scale up and you don't don't have only a single instance of something that provides a critical service. Uh, make sure that you have failovers that are each capable of handling most of the load of a system so they don't get overwhelmed. Yeah. And applying this in life is 
kind of the, you know, some of the same stuff as we talked about before, you know, don't live hand to mouth. Um, I've known people that were making like, you know, $130,000 a year. And like if their paycheck was a day late, it was a complete crisis because they, they just could not, not spend every penny they had. You don't want to do that. Also have other potential options other than your current day job and be able to pivot quickly if things go badly. Do you remember, I guess it was that, that March, um, you know, when I got downsized, uh, like seven years ago Yeah, and we were at a Microsoft thing and, you know, like I had to go back to the office and get told, Hey, your job's over with. And I, I remember because I have driven. Yeah. <laughs> I made a you phone call. You were glad I had my truck because you could put the stuff in the back. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I made a phone call from, you know, as soon as we cleared the parking deck, you know, with, with all my stuff, called a friend I was working uh, on a project with, you know, part time, you know, side work and said, hey, I just got downsized. He goes, hey, you can work 40 hours a week for me. Yeah. Because so I was unemployed for 12 minutes. I know that was that was quite hilarious. Yeah. Um, and I got severance. Yeah. <laughs> so it was weird to explain to the wife when I got home because it's like, hey, I got a bunch of extra money and I'm working from home now and I got a raise and yeah, okay. Stuff happened today. <laughs> Stuff <laughs> it was happened today. Yeah. Yeah. It's kinda, <laughs> there's just not a whole lot you can say then because it's like, hey, I've, I've, I handled this extremely well, kind of unintentionally because mm-hmm. I wasn't in that headspace yet, but uh, it's extremely powerful. Also think about how things scale and what failure modes are going to look like at scale because they do look different, you know, than what you're used to seeing. And if possible, simulate failures to make sure that they can actually be uh, tolerated to some degree. And that doesn't just mean load testing, right? That means what happens to other systems when this system goes haywire. Yeah. um, Or in life, just go, hey, I'm going to do a month where I am living on, you know, my emergency ration budget. Or, you know, every now and then I will, that's about, about once a once every other quarter or so I'll just be like, all right, time to, you know, rotate and eat through the stock. Yep. Cause you know, you kind of, you gather a little stock of, you know, some frozen food, some other stuff. That's just like, for example, I needed to go to the grocery store Sunday and forgot. And then Monday I was like getting pretty low on stuff. Monday I was going to go, Oh, it wasn't. I forgot. Um, Amanda's brother's in town. And so we ended up staying over at her parents' house later than I expected. I was just like, you know, but, uh, so Monday I was like, all right, well, I'm going to go to the grocery store. So I go visit her for a little bit. Had to, she'd brought her dog over. So I had to take him home and hug out with her. And then I was about to leave to go to the grocery store. And I realized that I left my wallet at home. Oops. Yeah. Of course she's like, well, you know, just take some money from, she has a, she had cash drawer. <laughs> she, she has a tip, it's actually the, the old tip jar from the bar she worked at when it shut down, but that's just where she put all her tips Yeah, from when she was working, working there. And so like, she's like, you just want to grab some cash. I'm like, no, I need to buy like dog food and all this other stuff. That's, you know, I'm going to be spending quite a bit of money. So I'm just, I'll go tomorrow. You know, and so I did. I went this uh, this morning after I got my real ID and stuff. But yeah, it's it's good to do that. Even like I said, even in life where you're all right, I'm going to to you know, eat eat through that stock and replenish it or whatever. Also, just to be like, all right, you know what? 
It's a little bit too much uh, split peas. I don't like that much split pea soup. I ate all the pelmeni in the house during this last snowstorm. I had a bunch of different like frozen pelmeni from the Russian (laughs) Snowstorms are great for stuff like that. And yeah, dude, I wiped those things out. I bet I gained weight during that snowstorm (laughs) Um, because those are not real great for your figure. Uh, So speaking of (laughs) things that are not great for your figure, don't suppress randomness. This is one of the other rules that took me a little while to kind of understand where he was getting at. Um, Life is random. And while it's necessary to suppress randomness and variation for things like industrial production, the reduction of randomness and variance in complex systems leads you to assume that your system isn't subject to them. You're often far better off by designing to automatically adjust for variance rather than assuming that there won't be any. So for instance, if you have a system that assumes that the input voltage isn't going to be above a certain amount because no, nobody would be stupid enough to plug something with that in. Maybe you want to have a fail safe there that fries anyway, in case it gets too much voltage and shuts it off instead of going, Oh yeah, I'll just take that energy and put it into the expensive components. Yeah. You know, even though nobody would ever do that. I've let the magic smoke out of some things. I'll just put it that way. Like, you know, a fuse. (laughs) Yeah. And it's cheap. It's not, that hard oh, to fix. Yeah. If randomness and disorder are accounted for when things are not catastrophic, it's going to reduce the odds of a cascading failure uh, by limiting the range of influence of that variance. So like Will's uh, analogy here. Yeah. Replacing a fuse. That's annoying. Replacing, uh, you know, an entire ultrasound machine. That's expensive. Or an ultrasound machine in the respiratory ward that burns up and all of a sudden there's smoke in the respiratory ward. Because that gets a lot more expensive real quick. So let's talk about how to uh, apply this to systems. Um, Don't assume that this problem can't happen at this point in the code. Ever. Because that's not true. Because maybe the code is that way right now, but... Tomorrow, maybe not. Um, Always enforce your invariants rather than simply enforcing them at the edge where you think they might happen. You know, assume the next programmer may be kind of hostile or an idiot. And a lot of us do that anyway, because we've run into a few of those. Now, to apply this in life, there's a lot of stuff. And this is actually a lot of stuff that I noticed you learned after your cascade. Yeah. Um, You know, don't leave home for appointments at the last possible moment. Uh, you know, leave early with the assumption that traffic might back up rather than having a failure when something happens or convince other people to lower their expectations. If you're Comcast, um, <laughs> you know, I don't feel bad about that cheap shot. I just got to say, uh, Oh yeah. Although here yeah. lately they've gotten better. Um, but I, I worked with a guy at a previous gig who would, who, who would arrive at the office. He was supposed to be there at eight and he would get there at eight. Like, you know, you know, consistently. And he was really proud of it because he's like, well, if the traffic backs up, I've got another route. And if that traffic backs up, I've got another route. And he's got like all these things to reduce the randomness versus just leaving five minutes earlier. And the problem is, is when all the routes got blocked, he was hosed and he missed a call with a client. And that ultimately was one of the things that made him get let go because he, he'd done several other scripts before that. So speaking of screwing up, um, the next rule that 
uh, Taleb brings in is skin in the game. So basically the idea is this, and your parents probably taught you this and you probably didn't listen until you realized that it was really important. And then you taught your kids this and they didn't listen. Uh, don't take advice from people who have nothing to lose by being wrong. Don't allow people to make decisions if there's no cost to them for being wrong. In other words, they have to have skin in the game. Yeah. Risk clarifies the mind and essentially provides a price discovery mechanism for advice. What was it? The the Baz Luhrmann song, the sunscreen song. Be careful with whose advice you buy. Uh, I forget exactly how it goes. I'm going to have to look that up. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. So applying this in a system, um, don't rely on third parties unless the third party has a service level agreement that covers the costs of failure might impose on you. If you don't, then their foul ups are cheaper for them than they are for you, and they're probably going to make more of them. Uh, this has been a problem that we've had with various software packages that we've used um, over the years. In life, don't put someone in a position to mess things up for you if there are no consequences for them in doing so. And you, you want to like extricate yourself from situations like that as soon as you discover them. You know, you, you don't want someone having that level of control over you. Yeah, because even if they're in favor of you and they're nice, they can just make a mistake because they're not paying attention Yeah, and completely destroy you. A corollary to this one is that if you want success, then you need to have skin in the game as soon as you possibly can. Otherwise, you're shooting in the dark trying to figure out what works and what doesn't putting skin in the game will force you to be better, better, right? Like we didn't start this podcast going, you know, Hey, I'm going to learn about podcasting theory and audio editing, and I'm going to spend three years doing that. And then maybe I'll roll out an episode, right? Like if you re- listen to the early episodes, you can tell we did not do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, by the way, a big shout out to our friend, Jason Belcher, who was already a fan of the show when we met him, but he gave us, or me specifically, so much advice on audio editing that really made the show uh, what it is today. Yeah. And I mean, really, that's anti-fragile, right? Like we got out there, we figured out where the mistakes were, and we used those mistakes mm-hmm. to get better with the help of somebody else who showed up because we made those mistakes. Yeah. We would have never known the guy otherwise. That's very true. Guys, there are general principles of system and life design that need to be applied if you don't want to constantly be dealing with problems. The principles of anti-fragility are especially useful to observe when you start noticing catastrophic failures that manifest as a chain of smaller failures that increase in intensity until something breaks in a major way. Following these principles, you should be able to figure out and mitigate many of these. And that pretty much wraps us up. Beach, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? So I told you guys I had a story for you here. This happened to me recently. And the UI developer, who's our lead UI developer, has apparently been dealing with this for a while. But uh, we have a BA who is having trouble writing user stories because what we're building is, you know, it's an enterprise level service. So it's it's not like, a customer facing kind of thing. So it, it is a bit harder. There's a bit more like, all right, you kind of got to understand how 
APIs talk to each other and stuff like that to really get it. But she got someone else on the, the BA team to help. And the two of them are wanting to, uh, basically I got invited to a meeting and then that got canceled. And it was, I was sent an email saying, Hey, here's like, I'm sorry. I couldn't make it to the meeting. I had something come up, but here's what I was thinking. Like, here's one of our user stories. Here's how I want to break it down. And it was basically, so like for a search functionality, uh, we had acceptance criteria for the API, which was, all right, pass this in on, you know, like pass this criteria in and this list of results, result properties that we want to see. And then on success, if there are, you know, matching documents, return this. On success, if there aren't any matching documents, return this. And then a couple of different specific errors that's like, oh, hey, this is a user error, like an input error that we can pass back and be like, hey, we want to pass back a specific message so that they know, oh, whoops, we forgot to send this in kind of thing, you know? And from that, from the API standpoint, they were breaking down each of those into a separate user story. It was like a user story for one success, a user story for the other success, a user story for each error. And then I go down to like, then they had, here's the criteria that's passed in. Here's for this particular one, like the criteria that's passed in the results that are coming out. Of course, the API is going to be built so that, you know, it doesn't matter what criteria is passed in. It's going to, you know, but for this particular search, so it's like the UI component there, but that was broken down into like, let's say there were four, four things they could search by four fields. Each field was supposed to be a user story. Each result field was supposed to be a user story. I'm having a hard time with this. <laughs> yeah. And then there, there were three, three basic functions, a search that returns the results, uh, print a CSV of the search results, and then like a download for each like result that comes back. Each one of those were supposed to get its own user story. And I'm just like, what? And so we actually got like the, the other developer and I got on a call because I was like, I don't even know how to handle this level of misunderstanding. Because it literally is. It's like, yeah, they're they're doing their best, and it's literally a misunderstanding of how things work. And I'm like, I don't even know how to handle this level of misunderstanding. Like, we're not even talking the same language at this point. So I honestly, I forwarded it on to our director of programming, and it's like, hey, I'm not even sure how to handle this. And so he got on the call with the two of us, and he talked to us about it. And while we were on that call, it occurred to me, I'm like it's like they're trying to break it down into the tasks and have like a user story for each task. And I said that and he's like, that makes so much sense. He's like, that's brilliant. I'm going to use that in the meeting. And like, he's like, cause that's probably how they want to break it down for their documentation for the, the BAs. He's like, this is great. He's like, I can actually get us on the same page with that, like that mindset. And so like what that made me think of and the reason like I tell that story is not everyone on your team is going to see things the same way. I see a u- I see a user story and I'm like, all right, here's how I'd break down the tasks for it. They see the same user story and they're like, oh my goodness, this is way too much information. I need a, a user story for each one of these, these things. And it's like, uh, no, <laughs> um, yeah. you know what the way they were thinking doesn't make sense for a development user story, but for the business side of things, 
and how they're breaking it down to the business to explain it, it does. The thing is how you approach a situation and your attitude can drastically affect the outcome. Like that's why I, I got higher authority involved because part of me, like Will's reaction, I wanted to go in with the attitude of this is the dumbest thing ever, but you know what's going to happen? That's going to lead to them being defensive, which will lead to me being defensive and just, you know, it, it won't resolve the situation. However, going in with an attitude of, I think there's a misunderstanding. And that's what I did. It was like, there's a misunderstanding here. I just don't know how to address it. And that led to a conversation, which ended up leading to our boss going, hey, I'm going to talk to to them about this and work something out. Because now that I know where they're coming from, you know, like we can we can figure this out and make it work for everyone. And starting that conversation uh, when things don't make sense is going to lead you to see the other person's perspective and help you come up with a solution. That's pretty much done. all I've got. Uh, wait, that's your line. <laughs> um, guys, I, I do want to take a moment before we close out and say, uh, if you haven't, check out our special episode that came out last week. We made the Aftercast public. So you can go onto Patreon and it is available for anyone to download. So go check that out. See see what it's like listening to that Aftercast. And then if you want to get more of them, it's just $5 a month for weekly Aftercast where uh, we talk with some of our listeners about the episode, what's going on with them. And, you know, it's a lot of fun. Like, we really enjoy that. That's all I got. Stand by for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. For references, show notes, and extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Help us make the show possible by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash completedeveloperpodcast. You'll get extras, including a weekly aftercast where we discuss the topic of the week and bonus material with some of our patrons. You can also follow us on Twitter at Complete Dev Pod, like our page on Facebook, and follow us on Instagram to keep up with news about the show. Join the conversation anytime via Slack by signing up at slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.